You're listening to the Dean's Dissertation, the Cleveland Sports Review and beyond, with your host, Greg Brenda. Hi, everybody. Greg Brenda here with another edition of the Dean's Dissertation. How you all doing today? Well, I called this one Times of Uncertainty. That's right. We are in a, I think, a weird time of uncertainty with the Cleveland sports teams that essentially are still playing, namely the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Cleveland Indians. And we have a few other tidbits to throw into you before we're all said and done today. First off, let's talk about the times of uncertainty with our Cleveland Cavaliers who are in the midst of the Eastern Conference Finals with the Boston Celtics. Now, for those of you who have followed this series and I'm sure most of you have. If you haven't, then you truly are not a basketball fan or maybe not even a sports fan. So why are you listening? Anyway, it's been a very interesting kind of schizophrenic look in these first three games and not knowing what's in store. The only thing that we do know for a fact is that the series will go at least five games. I said at the beginning that the Cavaliers would win in six. I did not anticipate that the Cavaliers would lose their first two games against the Celtics in really disheartening fashion. And when I say disheartening fashion, I mean uh, almost an inability, especially in game two, especially in the second half, and most especially in the third quarter, the lack of just a competitive zeal, a competitive effort uh, on the hands of the Cavaliers. And with the Cavaliers being down two games to nothing and with the Boston Celtics showing so much dominance and with a really, really good coach in Brad Stevens, I really did not give the Cavaliers much chance to win this series being down two games to nothing. Not that that's impossible because being down three games to nothing would have essentially made it impossible. It would have meant that the Cavaliers would have had to win four straight It would have meant that the Cavaliers would have had to win two on the Celtics home court. And it really eliminates any margin of of, of failure here. I mean, you, you really have no margin of error at all when you're down three games to nothing. Well, thankfully, the Cavaliers are not down three games to nothing. They were very dominant in game three. And the future, though, I think is still very much up in the air. It's chronicle. It's a fact. You can't lie. The Celtics one in five when they're away from home. Perfect at home, but one in five away from home. Will that continue? Well, if it continues and if it plays out the way it's played out, that the Celtics would win in seven games because the Celtics have the home court advantage. Now, Cavs fans, optimistic people would say if the series is tied at three and we have LeBron James, the best player on planet Earth, We'll take our chances. We'll definitely take our chances with LeBron James in a game seven, even on an opposing floor. I can buy that. I can certainly understand that. I might even go along with that, depending on how the series would evolve. Right now, I would say that the series is headed to seven games right now. But that could change. The Cavaliers really need to win on Monday night. If that does not happen, then it's going to be awfully difficult for the Cavaliers to uh, to get this done. It really would be because, again, being down three games to one, the Cavaliers would have to win all three games in a row and two against two on the Boston Celtics floor. Not impossible, but again, 
like having to win four in a row, winning three in a row would be really, really tough. In game three, the Cavaliers played like they should have played in games one and two. They were very, very, very forceful on defense, ran at the opponents, contested shots, anticipated, rotated defensively like we did not see in the first two games. Which begs the question, why, in fact, were they not ready to do all of that starting in game one? Why did it take a wake-up call in game one and game two for the Cavaliers to get started that way? I, 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 have, I have no answer for that. Did the Cavaliers seem to think that they really could go into this series, go into Boston and say, okay, even if you take the first two games, it's okay with us. No big deal. We're good with that. Um, you know, we can deal with that. Why would you put yourself under that, you know, that duress? Now, in game three, the Cavaliers made it look easy. Celtics were missing shots. Celtics seemed, um, well, they played like the Cavaliers played in the first two games. Bizarre may not be the accurate definition for how these two teams have played on their opponents' courts. It is really, really weird. Now, what's going to happen is it's going to hold true that the Celtics really have a very difficult task on winning on the opponent's floor, or they're going to shake it off and say, hey, we're coming to play. Game four is very, very pivotal for both teams because if the Cavaliers tie it at two, the Cavaliers have then put themselves in a very good chance of winning this series. Although, again, for game five, they have to go to the Celtics' home floor. That's why right now, and after three games, with still, you know, some decent information, but with a lot to go, I would say that it's quite likely now that this series would play out to seven games. But the way things have gone for the Cavaliers this year, the um, the ups and downs, the inconsistencies, the the unable to determine what's going to happen game to game, nothing would surprise me. Nothing should surprise me. Nothing should surprise you as to what may or may not happen. I think a lot of fans were counting after the first two losses that the Celtics would just kind of shrivel up and die on the Cavs' home floor. Well, they did that in Game 3. Would they do that in Game 4? Would they do that in Game 6? Hard to know right now. Brad Stevens has made the most out of a bad situation for his club, especially with the two best players not playing in Gordon Hayward and some guy by the name of Irving, something like that. I don't know. I, yeah, the, the name escapes me for the moment. So give them credit. They have played well. Give the Cavaliers credit for manning up in game three and doing what they had to do. In fact, I think in game three, just from a defensive standpoint, forget about it, they were making shots. Yeah, the Cavaliers were making shots. And when you make half of your threes, there's an awfully good chance that you're going to win a game. An awfully good chance that you're going to win a game when you're making half your threes. But I was most impressed with the defensive effort the Cavs displayed in game three. Again, I go back to the question, why did it take three games, three, to, to get to that position? In the end, it could haunt them down the stretch if this series is stretched out. Because again, you don't know when you're going to be playing a close game. And again, Somebody hits a big shot or doesn't hit a big shot. And for both teams, your margin of error is 
shrunken to the point of, well, you can't even see it. I was happy that LeBron actually got some help, more than enough help from his teammates in Game 3. Didn't really get a whole lot of help from a lot of players other than Kevin Love and Kyle Korver in Game 2. That, to me, is just befuddling. How some of these Cavaliers players are shrinking in the moment. Your NBA players, your millionaires, your professionals. Yeah, it's the playoffs. We understand that. And the playoffs are a different animal. You're playing the same team for as much as seven, seven games. Coaches are taking away what you do best. It goes both ways. But for the Cavaliers to essentially shrink in the moment in the first two games was beyond bizarre. So at least the Cavs are going to get five games out of this. As I said earlier, I think it's going to go seven. I'm glad they played a man-up game in game three. Because I want to tell you something. Had they not won game three, the tone of this podcast would not have been good. Trust me, it would have been downright awful had the Cavaliers lost the first three games of the series. So we'll see what happens going forward here. Should be interesting. I won't even get into what might happen in the NBA Finals. Golden State and Houston are, are going to be in a, in a tug of war, which I see Golden State winning. And I still see Golden State the best team in the NBA, bottom line, pure and simple. As we continue in the times of uncertainty, we have our own beloved Cleveland Indians who are atop the American League Central, as they have been for essentially the entire year. We haven't even gotten to the two-month mark yet. We're getting very close. But what is troublesome is that it's a 500 team. The Indians either are a few games above 500, they're at 500, or they fall below 500. Now, the sheep optimist out there would say, well, Greg, just as long as they win the division, it really doesn't matter. Well, okay, I get it. It gets you to October. But do you want to be a 500 team going into the postseason in October? And let's look a little more closely at the Indians. The bullpen has been an unmitigated disaster from day one. It still is. Um, the Indians' brain trusts are trying to fit in pieces. Uh, they've gone to Columbus. They've, they're, they're trying everything just to find the right pieces parts. But nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, has worked so far. And now you have the case of Andrew Miller, who had the hamstring injury, which set him down for a couple of weeks, now has back spasms. And other than Cody Allen, who is your closer, and you don't want to overwork him, you know, when Cody Allen has rest, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Just watch him. His location is terrific. He gets hitters to swing at bad pitches. He is in total command on the mound. But once you start overworking your closer, you're in deep trouble. The other day, the Indians had Allen in a five-out close situation. You can have those occasionally, but if those are now on a normal, regular basis because you don't really trust your setup guys or one of your best setup guys ever and Andrew Miller is on the shelf, you are seriously in trouble. And right now, with Andrew Miller's injury problems, you just got to wonder, is he going to be okay? Got over the hamstring issue, but wasn't sharp. Gave up runs. Cost the Indians some games. And now he's got some back issues, which is keeping him out of games. 
you got to wonder when this is all going to end. You you also got to wonder whether or not the Indians are going to be able to find all the pieces parts in that bullpen. Hey, starting staff's been fine. Even with Josh Tomlin, the starting staff's been incredible. It's done its job. Got no issues. Bauer, Kluber have been absolutely terrific. Carlos Carrasco, uh, absolutely terrific. I got no issues with that. They're not going to have a great game every game. That That just doesn't happen. But for the most part, the Indian starting staff has done its job. Period. How they're going to fix the bullpen is anyone's guess. There are no trades to be made in May, folks. Oh, I guess you could if you panic. I don't see the Indians front office panic. I see the Indians front office saying, let's see if we can tread water here for a while. Let's see how we do against, you know, they have the Astros now in back-to-back weekend series. They got the Chicago Cubs squeezed in between them. So you got some really good competition. How the Indians fare against those two teams will, I think, go a long way in determining just at the rate of how the Indians deal with the bullpen and other issues is going to take place and it's going to happen. So we'll see what what is going to be the case going forward. The other thing that's plaguing the Indians, although they have scored a ton of runs in the month of May, is that their offense is still a bit inconsistent. Yeah, they've scored a lot of runs. They've had some games where they've scored a million runs, and they still have games where they don't score enough runs. Jose Ramirez, bat has awakened. Michael Brantley has been a godsend. Knock on wood, he's still healthy. And he's hitting like Michael Brantley always hits. But again, we're still early on in the season and keeping your fingers crossed that Michael Brantley remains healthy. That's the key here, folks. Michael Brantley has got to stay on the field. The rest of the lineup is an if-come. Edwin Encarnacion will have his really, really good days and then go a week and really not contribute anything. Yonder Alonso, I think, for the most part, has been pretty decent. He's had a few, just a few rough stretches, but for the most part, been pretty good. Jan Gomes has been steady at the bat. Roberto Perez has not. Bradley Zimmer keeps running into walls. Here's the problem with Bradley Zimmer. He he is kind of like Grady Sizemore. Grady Sizemore played the outfield with reckless abandon. It's basically what shortened Grady Sizemore's career. He just banged his body up too much. The difference between Grady Sizemore and Bradley Zimmer, Grady Sizemore was about a 15 times better hitter than Bradley Zimmer. So Bradley Zimmer currently is not playing because he's all banged up. And that doesn't help. When he's out there, no question. Zimmer is an elite defensive center fielder. But is a, he's a terribly inconsistent hitter that needs to be better, and he needs to stay on the field, pure and simple. Brandon Geyer is what Brandon Geyer is. He's a reserve outfielder who will give you good days and bad days. Rajay Davis is an aging veteran, still has speed, still can help a lot. Lonnie Chisinau can't stay healthy. Indians are hoping that they can, they can get him back. Tyler Naquin was actually hitting better than most people thought he would. Hey, he was hitting better than I thought he would be hitting. And then he hurt himself. And he's going to be out for three weeks. So a guy that we really weren't conning on, who actually was helping offensively, 
is now sidelined, and that can't help the Indians. So the Indians right now are dealing with a very, very, very inconsistent outfield offensively other than Michael Brantley. You don't know what to expect game in and game out. You're putting really the offensive burden on the shoulders of, of Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez and Yonder Alonso, and to some degree, Edwin Encarnacion, who's inconsistent by nature to begin with. Oh, the one guy we haven't really mentioned is Jason Kipnis. I don't know, folks. I've said this over and over again. I've tweeted it. I've spoken about this numerous times. He is an old 30. He's batting in the low 170s. Occasionally, he gets a big hit. I would call him average defensively. I would call him aging beyond, well, whatever term you want to put there. I would trade him, but what is Jason Kipnis worth? People say, well, can we trade Kipnis? Well, yeah, but what do you think you're going to get for Jason Kipnis? He's hit a few long fly ball outs. He's hit some balls to the deepest parts of... um, of some ballparks, kind of a, 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 a bit of bad luck. I'll give you that. But Jason Kipnis has got to get on base. Jason Kipnis has got to hit the ball. Thankfully, Tito Francona has pushed him back down into the lineup where he doesn't really affect the top part of the lineup. But he's still playing every day, and Kipnis has to get better. Absolutely has to get better. I never thought I would say this, But I almost look forward to having Eric Gonzalez play second base from time to time and have Jason Kipnis sit out. I don't know if Jason Kipnis will ever find his all-star stroke again. It remains to be seen. But the longer that he doesn't find that all-star stroke, the bigger problem the Indians will have going forward. And that's a definite All right, to the Cleveland Browns. Well, you know, really nothing's going on other than like rookie training camp. But Browns fans have gotten into this. Well, what Browns fans always get into. Well, you know, maybe Baker Mayfield should be the starting quarterback when the uh, season begins. And Tyrod Taylor, you know, just be his mentor. Please, please, please stop falling into that same trap. Can we let a veteran quarterback just start, play, see what happens? Let Baker Mayfield learn? As I've said before, I have an open book with Baker Mayfield, all right? I'm I'm not sitting here harping that the Browns made the wrong draft pick or that he's got no chance. I have absolutely no idea. Would I have picked him? No. But as I've said before, They didn't ask us, nor should they have asked us what we thought. So we'll see what happens with Baker Mayfield. But for you impatient Browns fans, beware, it's not really worked. Oh, but Bernie took over for Gary Danielson. Gary, first of all, Bernie didn't start the year. Second of all, Gary Danielson may have been the best mentor for a quarterback ever. And thirdly, Bernie was elite. Okay, maybe didn't have the greatest everything going for him physically, but he was an elite quarterback. Nobody is saying that about Baker Mayfield right now, pure and simple. 
I see where Johnny Manziel is now playing in the CFL, and the media is making a big deal of it. Uh, sorry, folks. I don't follow the CFL to begin with, and certainly I'm not going to be scanning the sports pages every week to find out how Johnny Manziel did with the Hamilton Tiger Cats or whatever team he's playing for. You know what I know? He didn't help the Cleveland Browns win games. He didn't, he wasn't a professional. You know what? And to be honest about it, Johnny Manziel is dead to me. He should be dead to you also. Why he's not dead to the national media is beyond me. It's almost as if they're needing something to, 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 to grasp onto. Well, good luck with that, folks. I don't care. And finally, as we approach the summer, I, I hearken back to when I was a little kid in grade school. Man, this was the best time of the year. You know why? School was about to end. And I had three months, three months. Remember, school didn't start till after Labor Day back in the day. I had three months to basically do nothing. Play baseball with my buddies, collect baseball cards, do whatever I wanted to do, watch TV late at night, play outside from morning till sunset. Man, it was the greatest time. It really, really was. And I just go back to the end of May and, 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 and going, man, all I had to do was get straight A's in that final, qu final quarter. And then I would march down to the Cleveland Press with my dad and we would pick up our eight pairs of Indians tickets for free. That's right. If you got straight A's, you go down to the Cleveland Press and get eight pairs of tickets for free. So that meant eight free Indians games plus uh, grandstand manager tickets from the plain dealer. There were nine games of summer that we didn't even have to pay for to go see the Indians. So with that, baseball every day with my buddies, collecting baseball cards because then they were a nickel a pack, not... I paid $2.95 for a pack of baseball cards the other day. I almost died. It was kind of neat opening up the pack of baseball cards, but I didn't realize how expensive they were, although I still do collect the entire series of tops every year. But I just go back. This was the best time of the year when school was ending and knowing full well that you had three months of freedom. How great that was. All right, that's another edition of the Dean's Dissertation. Hope you liked it, and we'll be talking to you down the road very, very soon. Follow the Dean on Twitter at Sir Franks and Bacon. That's Sir Franks, the letter N, Bacon. Mmm, Bacon. <laughs>